Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton, a show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. This time around, I spoke to my good friend and regular podcast contributor, Joe Morgan, about three things, the return to school, depth in the maths curriculum, and sequencing a scheme of work. And I promise it is a good one. But just before we dive into that, a quick word from our lovely sponsors. Cue the fancy music. This episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast is proudly supported by School Exams. Now, regular listeners of the show may know all about School Exams, and I'm delighted to say that they've got in touch to make sure you all know about a few exciting developments. First, we've got a name change. School Exams is being relaunched this month as School Online Classroom. The new platform delivers the same powerful bite-sized video tutorial content for English and maths that they have become well known for amongst schools, but also adds functionality that allows students and teachers to interactively engage with past paper content. Some of the brand new features include auto-marking for key stage 2 SATs papers, rich booster quizzes to enhance sticky learning on every past paper, deep and rich analysis that allow teachers to gain incredible insight into both student engagement and performance, and easy teacher marking tools for students working out. Secondly, School Online have been working with Charlton Athletic Community Trust, I mean the good but the no North End, I can tell you that much, on a managed six-week pilot for Year 5 and 6 pupils with impressive results. There was an incredible 100.5% average improvement in English and 76.7% improvement in maths in six weeks. Ben Thomas, assistant head of Raniket Academy, who helped the pilot, said, and this is a direct quote, from a teaching point of view, these are incredible statistics to have this much progress in what is effectively half terms worth of time is quite astonishing. Most importantly, pupil feedback was overwhelmingly positive with many expressing a desire to continue using the platform once the pilot was complete. You can read more about the trial and the results using the link in the show notes. And thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, as in previous podcast sponsorships, I'm delighted to say that Schools Online can continue to provide the platform fully funded until the end of this academic year due to the generosity of their corporate sponsors. So the links to both the pilot study and how you can get free access to the platform will be contained in the show notes. Back to today's episode with Joe Morgan. Now, we all know about Joe, of course, but just as a bit of background, Joe, of course, is a legend of the maths teaching community. Her website, resourceaholic.com, is the go to site for many teachers to find hand picked, curated, top quality resources, and her Maths Gem series of posts are a must read for the latest mathematical gold out there. But as we all know, Joe is perhaps best known for her frequent appearances on this very podcast and my co host of several conference takeaway episodes, as well as some standalone episodes like this one. 
In this episode, we focus on three main themes. Firstly, how is Joe feeling and preparing for the forthcoming school year? Secondly, what did Joe find out when she surveyed over 800 teachers about the depth they go into with regard to different topics on the maths curriculum? And I'll tell you what, some of these survey results are fascinating. And then finally, Joe and I discuss our views and research that we've both conducted into the sequencing of maths curricula and schemes of work. And I love talking about that as well. Now, as ever, Joe is insightful and great company, and today's episode is no exception. Two quick plugs from me before we carry on. Uh, first, I've spent the summer updating my ultimate scheme of work on ED and diagnostic questions. There's an insight into my social life there. Uh, the current iteration, which is version 2.0, contains over 800 quizzes and over 8,000 questions covering the whole year 6 to 11 maths curriculum. There's loads of new questions and quizzes out there. I've tried to cover absolutely everything. And as ever, it is completely free. I've put together a free short course explaining all about it and giving you some ideas how you can use it both in the classroom and out of the classroom. And second, I've recorded a brand new CPD course that combines two of my favorite things, variation theory and the self-explanation effect to hopefully help supercharge your worked examples, whatever your preferred style of delivery. I'm dead proud of this course. I hope it is super practical and will give you um, the tools to allow you to immediately prove on your worked example the very next lesson. Links to both of those courses are in the show notes, so do check them out if you find those interesting. Anyway, without further ado, let me introduce Joe Morgan. I really hope you enjoy this one. I know you will, and as ever, I will see you on the other side. Right, well, it gives me great pleasure once again to welcome my very good friend and the most consistent contributor to this podcast, possibly been on more episodes than me, Joe Morgan. Hello, Joe. Hi, Craig. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Yourself? I'm all right. Yeah, one week into term, so I'm knackered. You know what it's like at the start of the year. But, um, now, normally, when I say how are you, you have some big long tail to tell me about. <laughs> we've had cyber crime, we've had all sorts happen in the past, but everything are okay generally this time. Yeah, it's actually, I probably, I think a lot of teachers will be the same as me, where it is so great to have a bit of normality back in schools. And I know that it's probably all going to go COVID crazy in the next few weeks, but just to be back in my own classroom, I cannot describe how good that is. So I'm, I'm actually in a really good mood. <laughs> That's very good. So let's, let's just put a bit of context on this. So we're recording this at the week, weekend. So have you, have you done a full week with the kids um, back in Monday? Yeah, we had, student, we had students in from Monday for like an induction thing. And we actually started teaching on Tuesday. So I've done four days in the classroom teaching maths. Nice. And again, just for the benefit of international listeners, um, can you just describe are no constraints whatsoever, no restrictions in the classroom? Are you just wandering around as if it was just a normal year? Yeah, it's amazing. I, I've got my own classroom back, whereas last year we were having to move from classroom to classroom, so we didn't have our own space. So my classroom has now got rid of all the rubbish that all the other teachers were kept leaving in there. So it's really <laughs> lovely. Um, I've arranged it how I want. And I can move around freely during the lessons, um, which is going to take a bit of getting used to having, you know, spent a year standing at the front. Um, and in the in the playgrounds, the, the students can go anywhere they want. And even like lesson changeover is like normal school. And it, it's almost like we've all forgotten what normal school's like. You yes. know, the bell goes at, at the end of a lesson and there's all these students from different year groups all mixing in the corridors. And we're so not used to that. Um, and even like a, a, a break time, it's just weird to see sort of a year seven and a year 10 sitting on the same table because um, we've had a year without that. So, yeah, it's all just totally normal. Um, and I know that, yeah, I think it's going to it's going to I don't know if it's going to stay normal. 
um, because I know there's a lot of kids, uh, a lot of particularly my at my daughter's primary school, they're all coming home with mm. COVID symptoms. Um, but um, from a sort of teaching point of view, it is delightful to be back to normal. And do you think, is it one of those things where you and the rest of the teaching staff and also the kids have just slipped back into it like quite naturally? Have you been quite surprised how, how um, the return no, to think, normality? I think the students have no clue what's going on. Like, they, they, it's so funny on their first day, they were like, oh, what, we come in here? Oh, we're allowed <laughs> yeah. to come in this door? Um, and like, even like, you know, last year we had them all coming down different staircases. So mm. we had like a year nine staircase and a year seven staircase. And it's like they keep going back to their original yeah, staircases yeah. and they don't get, they can go anywhere. Um but obviously, it's a bit funny in my school because we have only got year seven, eight, nine, and ten because um, we were a new school uh, three years ago. That makes sense. Four years ago, and the um, the first year we were in a temporary building. We only had one. No, we only had half a normal year in my building before the first lockdown started. Uh, yes. So we have we we've never really had normal. So like we're finding it just really we none of us can quite figure out. It's, to us, it's strange that we have a playground that's really full of students mm. because we haven't ever had that before. You know, at first we just had two year groups and then we had them bubbled. So yeah, it's um I think it will take a bit of getting used to. Um, you know, yeah, I, I feel like I felt I felt like I was intruding when I went and looked over their shoulders for the <laughs> lesson because I haven't done it in so long. But it is lovely. You know, it's just it's like proper maths teaching is has come back where we can actually speak to our students quietly in the lesson if they need a bit of help without kind of shouting across the room at them. So, yeah, that's great. Let, let me come in with, with a big question straight away, Joe. Um, I've kind of discussed this a little bit with you in the past, but I'm interested now that things have returned a bit more to normal. Are there any of the um, practices that you had to uh, kind of impose um whenever there was restrictions on in the classroom and you were teaching from the front and all that, any of those that are staying or have they all gone kind of out the window? Was, was there any benefits to how things were that you've, you've kept? Um, I think probably after, after the online lessons, there was a little bit of that where I, I sort of just slightly changed the way. So when I put, when I put an exercise up on the, on the board for them to kind of get on with, now I, I just, it's just a slight change to the way my slides look. Like now I've got an example pre-written that's already on there yes. next to the exercise. Um, and that was just something that was from online lessons was kind of essential because I didn't have a whiteboard where I could have left it up on there. Um, but I've kept that, you know, so now when I'm preparing lessons and I have a slide with an exercise, I'm, I'm putting that example, that worked example at the side so they can refer to it. Um, it's just little things like that. But no, I don't think there's anything, you know, like there were... Yeah, the, the sort of the, the the way that I would say that they had to sort of seek help, which really was kind of put your hand up and across the room say, yeah. um, can you explain this? And then I'd talk over them while some of them were working. You know, that that's, uh, that's I'm glad that's gone. Um, and yeah, so now it's really like I've said to them, you know, I um, if you need help, you can put your hand up and I'll come and speak to you quietly, which I think is really nice for some of them. Um, but yeah, I've um, a lot. I know a lot of teachers um, hadn't taught in rows before, um, and then yes. COVID came along and it made them teach in rows. Um, but I was a row teacher you anyway, to be honest. So, um, but yeah, I have actually. I, I I can now have my classroom how I want it, and it's it's a little bit different. I like to have it. You know, lots of teachers have kind of twos where yeah. the students sitting in pairs, and I have like a row, four on each side, like going in rows, going back, and then four on the other side. I have a massive, big, empty bit up the middle. Uh, so yes. I've got this huge, like, so I can basically get up and down the middle yes. of the classroom really easily, and it's this big, empty bit. 
Um, and I really like that rather than me having to sort of move around students. So, so when you say four, so kind of four kids on the left, four kids on the right. Yeah, so they're in rows facing forward, but they're in, and they're in groups of four facing forward. But it just, by not putting them in twos, you don't have those little gaps between their tables. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it means that you have a massive gap in the middle. And I really like that. I just feel like I can, it's almost like I can walk around the middle of the room teaching. Um, and it's really good. Um, I'm just, I'm really lucky. My, I've realised how lucky I am in my school, how good the behaviour is. Um, and they, um, they this week has just been absolutely delightful. Like the students, I think, I think they're quite shocked by like everything being different. So they've just sort of, sort of been a bit stunned. So yes. very, very well behaved and very, very what lovely. Um, we'll see how it goes. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? End of the first week, you're like it's, it's going so well. <laughs> like, give it a chance. <laughs> um, and in terms of um, again, we we spoke a lot whilst the the online learning was happening, and the, the ten, there seemed to be a feel amongst teachers that maybe that would be something that would influence their teaching when they went back to normal setting more like there was talk of doing exit tickets online because yeah. the kids were getting really comfortable with technology and teachers any any of that found its way or going to find its way into teaching this yeah, year you know, do you think? I, forgot, I forgot about that I forgot that the, I loved the end of lesson mm. quizzes I was doing now if I worked in a school where my students had devices in the lesson then I would stick with that you know yep. I'd say right end of the lesson let's all do a quick Microsoft T- uh, forms quiz on what we did in the lesson as an exit ticket but um in my school we don't have devices I would have to set that as like a daily homework I can't yeah. set daily homework so no it's not ah, that's okay. I mean you know having devices I probably if we'd had if my students had iPads for example I probably would have kept more of the online yes. learning stuff but um we don't even our poor students don't even have any um access but since since the big hack that Harris Federation oh, yeah, we've through, heard about that yeah back at Easter um my students don't even have teams or email at home still they haven't got that uh, set up yet so actually um we're going back to what we've always done which is setting two equity maths homeworks a week and um no there's so there's nothing that's kind of stuck but um yeah it's funny isn't it because I was absolutely convinced mm. I'd keep those things but that really is if you don't have devices I don't think it's practical to get them to do a electronic exit ticket every lesson it would be nice wouldn't it it, it would, would be, be nice. nice it's so it was so revealing and just yeah, you know it's like that and... really useful assessment tool that you can use to like you know exactly where to start your next lesson Anyway, anyway, um, the other thing I was going to ask you about just this year, have you have you approached the planning of it in any any different way? And I'm, what I'm interested here is we've had kind of a normal, I get my ears all muddled up here, but maybe two Septembers ago was a normal September. Would that be right? Last September was an absolute bizarre yeah, yeah, September. So, but yeah, it, two Septembers ago, we didn't know it was coming. So it that's was right. Normal. So two yeah. Septembers ago was normal. Last September was just a disaster. And then this September is kind of a bit of a mixed bag where it's just nobody really knows what's going to happen. How, how have you approached this 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 year in terms of kind of planning your own teaching, getting yourself ready for it? Um. I think in my school we've very much gone for the the idea of we think we did a good job with the online teaching and so we don't feel like we're you know it's not like we've changed our curriculum at all mm-hmm. we're just like right back in carry on um we you know we we are still doing the um in fact that was I forgot about that that's something we changed after the first lockdown do you remember we brought in those warm-up booklets oh yes yeah which, which were very much I mean we were all doing retrieval you know in some some, some form but just now, remind us about those Jake. so so and i know there's, there's a bit of an anti-starter thing going around at the moment it comes around every few years where everyone says starters are bad things um and i always think it doesn't it doesn't make sense because these people do they have everyone arrives at the exact same moment in their classroom and they just start teaching yeah, it doesn't yeah. make sense to me but as the students are arriving which happens over the course of three or four minutes um as they come in the classroom 
they sit down and open up their warm-up booklet. And this only works if you have the right attitudes and culture and you have, mm. they know how important the retrieval is. So people who say it doesn't work because they don't care about the starter, I agree with that. You have to, this, my students really take it seriously. So my students will arrive in the lesson and they will all complete the warm-up in full and they'll um, the warm-up will be uh, topics from the previous year. So this is their retrieval thing and particularly topics that were covered in lockdown where some of them didn't do it very well. And the idea is that the warm-ups are kind of cumulative. So for example, with year 10, I've started where they've got three warm-up topics. It's got a shape transformations and they've got a bounds and they've got um, volume. And then so the first lesson will be three questions on that. And the next lesson will be three more questions on that. Um, so if they couldn't remember it the day before, yes. but yet they made corrections and we went through the warm up, then they'll be able to do it the next day. And then they get gradually harder. And so we basically will have the same three topics for about two, three weeks. And they and that means that you can see their progress in the warm ups because, you know, if they couldn't remember it in lesson one when they made corrections that helped. And then they gradually get better. So it's almost like a way it's like a little bit of mini teaching of those topics again. Um, and that yeah so that was we put that in to address warm-up gap uh, lockdown gaps and actually we really like it but it's all about for people that say it doesn't work because the kids don't care about these warm-ups it's just all about how you your classroom culture and how you sell it to the students at the start of the year like mine understand what retrieval is all about and how important it is so they all do it and I don't have this problem of them saying oh I'm going to be late to the lesson because the warm-up's not important no that's that's not what's happening in my school Got it. Got it. Um, I'm interested in well as well in terms of assessments that you're doing with the kids. And the yeah. reason I ask this at the time of recording, there's a really interesting article uh, published that was written by Kate Jones, Dylan William and Robert Bjork about how giving kids assessments at the start of a year, particularly this year, might not necessarily be the best thing to do and suggesting alternatives. Well, where do you stand with with assessments? Have you have you done anything early on with kids in the first few weeks? And would you would would that be something that you do normally? Or is that something that you brought in? Where, where are um, you at? I'm not I'm not as sensitive about um, upsetting kids or assessments as some people are I don't think I think um, you know I don't I don't see massive amounts of anxiety in my school around assessments but we have not this is unusual this year we haven't started with a baseline for year seven because if they haven't done sats and normally we would use their sats to get them into sets in year yep. seven and then we do a baseline when they come in and we just tweak the setting because we know the sats results aren't always that helpful for doing sets but this year we had them come in on a Saturday in July because we're wow. in an evil school, terrible <laughs> school. And we had them do cats. It was two hours on a Saturday in July. They did um, cognitive ability tests, um, which are online. And they, they sat down for two hours um, and did those in July. And then unfortunately, because I'm in charge of these for the school, because I'm assessment lead for the school, I had 75 who were isolating that day oh. because um, a whole one of our big feeder schools had shut its year six. Yes. So then I had to do, so we did those last week. And what we did was the students were coming in for their COVID tests anyway, which they had to have before term started. So they came in and got their lateral flow test done. And then they just popped through to computer room and sat and did their two hours of gas nice. and off they went. And that was before term started. So I've now got all 200 of my cat's test done um, and I actually this year I've used those results to put the students into maths oh, okay. and actually maths is the only subject in the school that isn't um, mixed attainment we're the only subject that sets um, and I think I kind of think that to some extent the cat's test results are quite a good proxy um, for how good they're going to be at maths to some extent but again we'll we, we can tweak them if they're not right but the way we do our setting we've done this for the last couple of years in fact just last year we did it we have a top we have two top sets 
um, two bottom sets and then we have a mixed middle. Um, so, you know, our two top sets um, will be our super strong mathematicians and our two bottom sets are the ones where we really don't think mixed attainment works for them because, you know, they're, they're, they, know, they know what's going on. They're really struggling. They really need sort of extra support and they need a slower pace. And then the middle is obviously the majority of the year group. So, you know, it's almost it's 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 kind of it's not mixed attainment, but it's that middle. Those middle sets are quite wide in their in um, kind of the pace they work at. But yeah, so that's that's how we've um, started with year seven. So no, we haven't had we're not doing any baseline assessment in maths because we just set them on their CATS tests. Um, and we do um, we do what we are uh, learning snapshots at the end of every unit, which are just like little mini tests in class sort of like half hour things. So we'll quite quickly figure out if anyone needs support. What um, about eight, nine and ten? Well, well, actually, this is the first. This is amazing, actually, because it's the first year where well, not the first year, but we, this is a, we really feel like we've got great information on these students because we did proper end of year exams last year. And even though they've been out on, on um, lockdown and, all, you know, been a really disrupted year in July, we did off timetable, you know, properly sitting down, taking end of year exams in year seven, eight and nine. Um, and we did two one hour maths papers. Um, which were amazingly, this was, this was so good, first time I've done it, not um, tiered. So the whole of year seven and the whole of year yes. eight, whole year nine did the same paper because previously, especially at my last school, we always did tiered papers. And I always yeah, said, yeah. You, can't, you can't put them properly into sets if you've done tiered papers. Um, so we, yeah, we did, a, we did, we, we worked really hard on it. We came up with some really good exam papers that we wrote and we, and they had to be quite long and they had to be a full 60 minutes each because you're covering kind of the whole range of yeah. um, students. Um, and so we've got really good data. So what that means is we've been able to put them into we put them into the right classes. So it feels like for the first time in ages, we've actually got them in the right groups because last year we hadn't had any end of year assessments the previous year because they'd been in lockdown. So mm. we hadn't done any assessments. So we just kept them in the same sets they were in the previous year. And a lot of those sets were just really rubbish, like terrible, like just terribly arranged where we had you know students in the bottom set who were stronger than students in the top set. And it was just a big mess. So this year, everything is like everyone's where they should be. Um, and it just feels like we're much more organized now. And it's just amazing how having strong assessment data really makes things work better. Got it. Got it. Um, before we move on to starting to talk about um, kind of the main topic of, of today, which is uh, depth in, in curriculum, was there anything else you wanted just to share with us about your kind of first week back or things that you're thinking about for this year and anything that we've, we've missed? Um, no, I think, I mean, when we talk about the depth thing, I mean, that's really the thing that's changed in my teaching sort of over the last sort of five years. And, and what's really nice this year is I'm teaching year eight and year nine the uh, middle sets, which is what I did last year. And I am literally just reusing last year's oh, lessons because nice. I put so much time into them last year. So it's kind of so, and year 10, I've not taught in a, quite a while. So I'm planning those kind of from scratch, really. Um, but yeah, isn't it, is it the whole, when we talk about sort of teaching in depth, and a lot of it comes across as, and a lot of what I say, people, when people listen to me doing CPD and I say, um, I talk about planning, and people think I just haven't got time to plan lessons mm. like that. You just have to bear in mind that, like, the the benefit in future years yes. of taking the time so like this year it's taken me five minutes to plan my year eight and year nine lessons because I've pretty much just can use last year's um and so it really shows that you know it's it is it is like a short-term thing of all this kind of work of really thinking in detail about what you're teaching and then you don't have to do it every year 
yeah so we'll talk a bit when we talk about depth i'll sort of explain a bit more but yeah it's um i'm i'm benefiting hugely on a workload basis from the fact that year 10 are the only class that i've got this year that i haven't taught in a while and it's so good teaching gcse again craig it's really good i've had this like break of teaching just key stage three and i have loved it but i've missed the gcse so i'm doing thirds next week but it's yeah. interesting because you were um that was one of the things you were most scared about wasn't it the fact yeah. that you'd only be doing key stage three and so on but you've, you've really enjoyed your key stage three teaching i have you? enjoyed it and the thing is it's funny because i got so i was i was so it was almost like an arrogance of well i'm an a-level teacher yeah, you know? yeah. And like you know or i'm like because i i often taught um I, a couple of years in a row i taught top set year 11 and i was like you know i can get them grade nine yeah, that's what yeah. i'm an expert in um and then, and actually, it was for my practice going down to key stage three has been incredible because it's really um, improved me as a teacher, um, and and I have enjoyed it a lot. I think the thing is that um, a lot of it's down to I associated key stage three with bad behaviour um, yes, and a lack of and a lack yes. of focus from the students and students just not really caring about their math lessons. And I thought at GCSE and Able they're they're more invested in it. But actually, you know, the change of school really helped where I'm at a school where there's really good attitudes at key stage three. So that that does help. But yeah, I am. A, I'm, I'm a convert. I hope I always have a bit of key stage three on my timetable. That's nice. Fantastic. <laughs> right. OK, well, let's let's turn to um, your research ed session. So a bit of background here. Joe and I both did research ed national a couple of weeks ago at the t- at time of recording this. Um I mean, I'm just going to put this out. I'm going to tell the same story, Joe, because I was fuming, wasn't I, right? Because <laughs> I'm fuming for a couple of reasons. So I hope Tom Bennett's listening to this here, whoever schedules this in. So first, me and Joe were put on at the same time, right? So if, you, if you're loving maths, it's, you know, you, you're in a bit of trouble there choosing. And the, the, most people chose Joe, which was, which was annoying. <laughs> I definitely did. I think I had about the well, same amount as you, actually. The other annoying thing was, well, this time last year I did a session. I was essentially headlining in the <laughs> theatre, this time, I mean, classroom, what was it, like 5,023 or something? It was, you needed a map to find it. Absolutely unbelievable. Next year, I'll be out in the car park by a bin or something doing a session. But anyway, we're not here to talk about my session. We're here to talk to talk about uh, Joe's session. Now, again, I, I didn't have the benefit of seeing it because I was talking at the same time. Joe, tell us about it because it sounds, it sounds fascinating. What are you having a sip of here, by the way? It's water. <laughs> what, in like a coffee cup? Well, it's my white rose secondary maths brunch. Nice. I'm here, but no one, no one can see it because they're listening to this. But yeah, this is a this is a white rose uh, coffee cup. Very good. I, I don't drink, right. coffee, so it's good. <laughs> <laughs> right, go for it. Tell us about um, your session. Right, so this was so this was a session that I did on um, about depth and and te- and how teachers rush through things all the time, mm. and and I'm trying to get to the bottom of why teachers rush through things are they choosing to rush through things because they think that's the best way to teach or are they rushing through things because they don't know how to teach for Mm. depth Mm. or um is it because of more fundamental things in in the way our national curriculum's designed Mm. where we're basically forced to rush all the time yes um and i did a session for la salle um at maths conference in july where I um, I tried to explain what teaching for depth looks like, and I used kind of three different topics to explain how I taught them um, for depth. So how I, I these topics that quite often teachers rush through in a week, I'd sort of spent three weeks going into a lot of detail on my students. So I did that one back in July, and then I found out I was speaking at 
no, then I put in my submission for Research Ed and I thought I better do some research because I don't want to yeah, go yeah. to a Research Ed conference and not actually have some research. So I did a survey um, and I got about 800 Key Stage 3 maths teachers uh, nice. responding, which that's a decent Good amount that. of um, information. And they um, and it was really sort of seeking opinions um, and information on how quickly people teach things and um the most interesting bit actually was the comment section where people kind of told me their stories about being forced to rush and it's really yeah. interesting um and then um and then so i bought so the one i did at research ed was um also about depth so it's similar to my lasalle one but instead of going into detail on this is how to teach maths in depth bearing in mind i knew i might have some non-maths teachers mm. in the audience it was more kind of looking at um, the survey results and then also analyzing the national curriculum and answering the question is our curriculum actually the problem here because I, I, I just feel like there's it's, it's, I know how to teach in depth but yet I rush quite a lot mm. and I and I rush because um, the scheme of work doesn't give me enough time to to go into depth on some topics and I'm not I think that's the the fault of my head of maths who designed the scheme of work I think it's because there's too much to fit in to yeah. a short amount of time on the national curriculum. So um, I, I feel like the I, it, it makes me sad that I have to rush. Um, and I, I was really interested to find out whether other people were feeling the same thing as me. Oh, good tea. What you've done there, you've provided a nice hook there, Joe, as well. You're a pro at this now. So can, can you, is a good place to start with these survey results. Can you tell us the questions and some of the results? Would yeah, that, would that I mean, I can, I can tell you, um, I'll tell you some sort of... Uh, extracts of, of some of the interesting things yeah. because actually some of like I say some of the interesting things was actually the um the sort of written comments yeah. um so 64% of the respondents agree that they feel like they sometimes teach topics too quickly mm. so you know I would have strongly agreed with that yeah, yeah. um I definitely teach too quickly sometimes and and it's not just I think there's two reasons one is because sometimes the scheme of work doesn't give me enough time it might give me one week for something that's actually quite a chunky topic yeah. and then yeah. I have to rush um, or it might be that I've overrun on some other topics and we've got an assessment coming up and I know I have to sort of get through these other yes. things so my students aren't going to lose out. Um, but also I think I rush sometimes because I just haven't had enough time to do like good planning. You know, like if I'm having to, if it's something I haven't taught in a while and I've, I've got sort of 10 minutes spare mm. um, to teach this topic, then it's probably going to be quite rushed in the delivery as because it was rushed in the planning. Yes. Um, but I'll, so here's I'll read out. This was a quote from one of the um, one of the respondents. So he or she says, um, "I do feel we rush through topics and only have time to scratch the surface of students' understanding. Mm. This makes it much more difficult for students to retain the skills they have learned because they haven't had time to fully understand them to begin with." So what this teacher is basically saying is that. It, she's talking about this idea of scratching the surface mm. and that's really what that's that's kind of my the main kind of theme that I'm talking about here when our students get to a level we're finding that their understanding of kind of fundamentals isn't great and yeah. e even though they might have got a good uh, result yeah. at GCSE and I really feel that's because a lot of the time they're just scratching the surface of, of our um, of the of the maths they're taught at key stage three and four. And it's like they kind of like become a jack of all trades. They can do a little bit of lots of different yes. maths. They can do a lot of procedures, but they're not given opportunities to develop kind of a deep understanding of anything because everyone's teaching stuff so quickly. Um, and I, I told the story at Research Ed about how when I worked at um, a grammar school, um, we 
we went through everything at breakneck speed. Like it was ridiculous how quickly we went through things. And it was always like, well, it's a grammar school. They're really smart students. Mm. So we can go quickly. You know, the pace is right for them. And we rushed so much that we would have the whole of year 11 where we finished. And instead of then going into greater depth on the topics, we just used to spend the whole of year 11 doing this (laughs) rubbish revision where we get the students up at the front teaching the lessons and they do like kind of a rubbish. They didn't know any of the misconceptions. Of course, they can't do a like particularly good revision lesson. And um, so we really like didn't use the time well. And we didn't really, we thought that was fine because at GCSE, they all got A stars, you know, just going back sort of 10 years. They all got A stars because they were, you know, it was a highly selective school. Of course, they were going to get A stars. They've also got really supportive families. They're really hard working so they would all do really well and then we get to a level and this was back in the days of as and and they'd all kind of on c1 and c2 they'd all come out with c's and d's yeah even though they got a stars at a level and the stupid thing was officer came in and criticized our sit form um and said um and said you need to improve sit form teaching and, and it was like now when I look back I think that everyone missed the trick there because actually the sit form teaching was decent it was, it was good sit form teaching it was the the fact they were doing so badly um particularly in, in maths a level was because the key stage three and four had been so rushed and there'd been no teaching for depth of understanding it had all been like procedure rush through can you do it yes move on so maybe i'm wrong you know but it, it really felt like the the cause of the bad A level results was the practice down at key stage three and it felt like no one was seeing it you know in the school they didn't get it and offset didn't get it um, so no one was changing. I think he said everyone was sort of all this focus on what can we do differently yes. at A level, but nothing was wrong at A level. Um, so yeah, I do think um, we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot a bit, you know, with the, the with the kind of this rushing thing, um, and we think, oh, they get it, so it's fine. And it's like, yeah, but um, are you teaching them at A level? Because actually, yeah. you probably change your change the way you approach things. If you had to have this class for seven years. Um, I wonder if you'd approach seven, yeah, seven years. I wonder if you'd approach things differently yes. if you knew you were going to teach them at A level. That's know. interesting. That's interesting. Give, give me another question, Joan. Another okay, result. so um, we did. Um, so there, there was a whole section where I was asking about. Um, right, let me find it. I was asking about how much time schemes of work were allocating to certain topics. Mm. And there were were quite a few people that responded to the the survey saying things, they're saying that their their scheme of work doesn't allocate certain times. Then I think, I mean, really it does. (laughs) Because if you have like, if you have a number of topics that your scheme of work says yeah. you have to teach in year seven and you have an assessment at the end, yes, then yes. it may not be, it may not specify the time, but you do have a set amount yeah, of time, yeah, you know, yeah. because let's, people shouldn't be sort of suggesting that they can spend as long as they want because they, they then they kind of, it's like they're, they're not seeing the, the constraints that, yeah. are, that are there. Uh, yeah. But I think most schemes of work, have some kind of guidance, you know, it might say, it might say you have to spend a certain amount of lessons, or it might just say um, recommended time mm. or something like that. And actually some of the, there were a few um, survey results, uh, some people from the survey and explained situations that were horrific, like um, that you had to have, it was like a definite number of lessons. And that's oh. terrible, you know, like actually schemes of work or, or practices and departments that said, you have to spend four lessons on this and then you have to move on. Mm. And that's absolutely appalling practice because we more so than any other subject, we have to be responsive in maths to our students. You know, we have to 
um, we have to plan our lessons based on how our students are responding in lessons. You know, that's the whole point in kind of in lesson assessment and all that sort of thing. I mean, um, just to play devil's advocate on that, I, I agree it's not ideal practice. You can see why heads of department or seconds in department would like it, particularly if they're doing standardised assessments. Yeah, I can something. understand it. Yeah, yeah. I could, but it just it just seems like I mean. Or, I suppose if you had, you could argue if you have mixed attainment classes, it might be more possible. Obviously, if you have, if you're teaching in sets, then yeah. you can't, then they're all going to be working at a different pace. So I just don't see how that works there. I suppose if you're teaching mixed attainment classes, you could, I just, I would hate to teach in a department like that because it's leaving absolutely no room for teachers to try things out mm. or do things a bit differently or to see how something goes um and it's you know it's the uh the, i don't know you know they're not you can't you you can't predict exactly how long something will take but yeah there is there is some advantage to um testing everyone at the same time it just... and again and again just thinking of schemes of work like if uh, we're going to go to talk uh, at the end of this we'll, we'll, when we move on to sequencing and we'll, we'll we'll mention some schemes of work and, and how they order things but if you look at some of the big schemes of work whether it's white rose whether it's arc whatever it may be they've all whilst they don't say the amount of lessons they're all pretty much kind of two weeks on this one week yeah. on this and so on right they, they don't on the face of it they don't imply that there is that much flexibility built in there i i think you have to when you design a scheme of work department you kind of have to put it in blocks don't you you have to yeah have, yeah yeah you have to yeah. have this kind of approximate two three week thing and i think that's and i that's absolutely what i would do um, and I think that's that's makes sense because you kind of have to give this idea. Um, and it's almost like so for me, for example, I know that for year 10, I've got um, I've got thirds and what we call advanced trig, which is a sine and cosine rule. I've got to cover them in the half term and given yes. the half term six weeks. That's basically three weeks on each. Yes. Um, but I think and, but it's 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 where some schools are literally saying an exact number yeah, of lessons. Right. And there's no you know, so for me, I know that if I spend a bit more time on thirds. I will have a bit less time for trig. And that's a decision that I am making yes, as a teacher yes. and looking at my class and seeing how they get on. And, I, and I, so I'm not sure I would like it if my head of department said, no, once you get to the end of that three weeks, you're moving on from search, whether you like it or not. Mm, um, mm. I don't know. I just, I feel like um, there needs to be a, a tiny bit of uh, teacher autonomy, although some people are totally against any teacher autonomy. Um, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I totally agree that every every scheme of work, even if it doesn't specifically say has a built-in kind of recommended time or approximate yes. timings. So this was, it was really interesting um, and shocking in some ways to see some of the time allocations. And the thing is, when I did the survey, I, I said topics where I didn't list when I, you know, when I say angle basics, what do I mean by that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so the results will sort of in some way depend on how people have interpreted things. But just to give you an idea, um, by far, the vast majority of people uh, said four hours or less for angle basics. Now, you've sat through my angles in depth um, have, have. CPD. And so you can probably tell that that really upsets me that yeah. <laughs> anyone could do angle basics in less than four hours. And we're talking there, I'm, I'm thinking angle in a straight line, um, angles in triangles, all that lovely isosceles stuff you can do. Yes. There's a whole load of angle stuff. Um, also, four hours or less was by far the majority said that for angles in parallel lines. Ooh, and, you know, again, well. yeah. I, I have a separate CPD session on that, and I spend three weeks on angles in parallel wow. lines. Jeez, and and yes. basically, there's pretty much no one answering that on the survey. Yeah, and yeah. There's so much to do on that. I mean, that's there's there's so many amazing um, opportunities for reasoning in angles in parallel lines. 
I can't believe anyone could do that in, in less than four hours. Yes. Um, it was the same for angles and polygons, but that one um, I can kind of see that you could spend um, for you know a week on angles and polygons. Um, index laws is really interesting um, because. Um, a lot, most schools are doing index laws in, I think, year eight. I've actually, because that was another question I asked what year people yeah. are doing it in, which is actually really helpful when I'm looking at schemes of work and stuff. But um, index laws, weirdly, isn't it even specified on the Key Stage 3 curriculum? You know, it's mm. specified on Key Stage 4, but most of us do it in Key Stage 3 for good reasons. Um, that one was actually a bit more balanced. Some people are spending between four and eight hours, but still the majority spending less than four hours on it. And- and it's probably worth saying at this point as well that when we when teachers say they're spending four hours, we're thinking they're like it's not all of it's not a hundred percent of those four hours are spent teaching that particular topic. Yeah. We've got the starter in there, we've probably got like, you know, reviewing homework in there, yeah. all other things. So we're probably it's probably even like 70% of whatever yeah. time allocation is actually spent on the actual yeah. topic. So the numbers are even lower, right? It's, yeah, yeah. it's interesting. Absolutely. And like with index laws, like I I I can I find I used to teach all three index laws in one lesson. I'm teaching index laws tier eight this week. I've done mm. a lesson on the multiplication law, I've done a lesson on the power law, I'm doing a lesson um on the division law. I'm gonna do a lesson where it's all mixed up and then a whole load of other stuff. You yes. know, there's load then it's all the reasoning and the problem solving and all the like all this great stuff. Um I'm not going into really advanced stuff. I might do a little bit on negative indices, I won't go near fractional indices. Yeah, yeah. But like I, I, I find that quite surprising. People are spending less than four hours on that. When yes. there, to me, there's loads. Um, the two, there were th- four topics where the kind of modal answer was between four and eight hours. And that was Pythagoras, trigonometry, um, linear graphs and shape transformations, where most people are spending two weeks on those topics. Um, but then the other ones I asked about were metric units, constructions, air and circumference of circle and it's band old brackets and again most people are spending less than a week on those things and do you get i mean this is fast this is absolutely fascinating joe are you getting a sense that people are answering here Let, let's take something like um transformations is a good one yeah so just remind me transformations that you say in a, four to eight did you say something like that um right? yeah so the, the the most the majority of people here some have answered quite a few have answered yeah. less than four hours but the majority have said between four and eight hours i did specify reflections translations and rotations so i did yes. include in, um, enlargements in that yes and so, i get, mean that's quite that's quite good but do you get the sense when people are answering this they're, mm-hmm. they're thinking about the first time it appears on a scheme of work and thinking, right, year eight, that's yeah. when we get it. But then yeah. are you getting the sense that because teachers, as we spoke about, are rushing through, that then transformations is popping up again in year 10 and essentially being taught for that perhaps that same allocation of time, but it's it's not yeah. going deeper, it's just redoing the same stuff again do you get that sense yeah I can't remember what my, how I worded my question but it was essentially like you know in that think about the teaching of this in key stage three and yes. how long you're spending on it and, yes. and I try I, I tried to pick topics that I felt were quite um kind of standalone yeah, so for example sense. shape transformations you'll probably teach that once in key stage three yeah and then in key stage four you'll come back and you'll do a bit of recap and you'll add in maybe like invariance or something yes yes but that but really the majority of the teaching that's in key stage three so yeah, I tried to pick topics that I thought were kind of fairly self-contained. Makes sense. Um, but it is, you know, it's hard. It, it, I, I didn't put, you know, you'd have to really look in a lot of detail to yeah, find out the course. real answer. Because when I actually, when I did, the, I talked quite a lot. I, I went through Pythagoras as an example um, in at Research Ed because I spend three weeks on Pythagoras and that's in year eight. 
And they then I'll come back to it a little bit in year, say year 10, probably when we're doing some trigonometry, do a little bit of 3D Pythagoras at some point at GCSE. But really the majority of Pythagoras teaching is happening for me in year eight. And when I, David um, Farum or Farum, whose name I can never pronounce, sorry, David, um, he was in my session and he came up to me at the end. He said, well, you it's about how we define things because you're saying you can't believe people spend less than four hours on Pythagoras but I guess they're just not including all the stuff you're including. And I'm, and I'm saying uh, the stuff I'm including is because I'm trying to teach it in depth. So, yeah. cause you know, when I went through my 12 lessons, you know, I'm putting that, I'm putting stuff in there because I believe that's what leads to a depth of understanding. You just give us a bit of a, a sense of what some of those things are, Joe, just so people can. Yeah. So I, I mean, I've got, you know, so for Pythagoras and bear in mind, so this is the, this is the stats on Pythagoras. 42% of respondents spend less than four hours on Pythagoras uh, 48% spend between four and eight hours and only 10% do what I do, which is more than eight hours on Pythagoras. So I'm very much in the minority and I've got on my list, this was with a middle, um, year, middle set year eight, did it last year. These were, I had 13 lessons on Pythagoras. Um, mm. and I didn't even include a few, I, I've got a little list of things I didn't include because I didn't have a top set and I probably would have done over top set. So like I so I start my first lesson is around no some people might say they haven't included this so that's fine I started with a rounding recap mm-hmm. because actually having taught Pythagoras before I know that sometimes the questions say things like round to significant figures yeah. students have no idea what significant figures are because let's be honest we all teach that in year seven and they never remember um, and the thing with and the thing is that you don't want to be midway through Pythagoras yeah. and the thing that's confusing them is the rounding so really a rounding recap makes sense at the start. Then I did a lesson on roots and squares mm. where I was doing things like um, work out four squared plus three squared because actually some of them were multiplying by two instead of squaring and doing all sorts of crazy things. Yep. So I did, and also I did in that lesson, we did a bit of calculator work. So I did a whole lesson really looking in depth at roots and square rooting and making sure they had a strong understanding of that before I get started, um, which was really needed. My assessment in that lesson showed that lesson was really needed. Um and then I did a lesson where we talked just about labeling the sides and like what hypotenuse is. And then I also in that lesson did quite a bit on the history of Pythagoras. And I appreciate yeah. a lot of people wouldn't do that. Um, students loved it. I think it's really interesting talking about the sort of crazy cult of Pythagoras. Um, then I do um, a couple of lessons, finding the hypotenuse, finding the length of a leg um, and then going on to a multi-step. So, you know, and actually there's such a key maths learning point there, isn't there? You know, when you have two triangles stuck together. And you have to use Pythagoras to find the length of a side. Yes. You have, so you have to use Pythagoras twice. Yeah. And yep. we know that after you've done Pythagoras the first time, you're going to want to keep your answer as a yeah. in exact form. And you don't want to write it as a decimal and round it and then use that. And it's such a, a really vital lesson for a developing yes. mathematician. Oh, absolutely. Because, yeah, that, that idea of keeping it as an exact value is not obvious to them and is something that we know a lot of year 11s would never do is keep yep. it as that value yep. and when I this year when I was marking the end of your assessments and we had a multi-step Pythagoras problem and I had um maybe about five or six students in my class had had written the answer kind of in third form oh sorry written that that middle step in third form labeled it on the diagram nice. and then and, and I was so pleased because that, that to me is the forming of a mathematician yeah. like that is a, such a key skill so I'm only at this point I'm only six lessons in Mm. so then I have worded problems we know all the ladder stuff they do find that really hard I did a whole lesson on the converse of Pythagoras so is it a right angle triangle wow okay yeah I did a lesson on the distance between two points so that's basically um coordinates 
mark this coordinate, mark this coordinate, what's the distance between them? That's Pythagoras. And yeah. I don't know when else they're going to do that. You know, this yeah. was the opportunity to do it. So at this point, I also did two lessons on 3D Pythagoras, but I could have left that till year 10. Mm. Then I did a big wrap up lesson with some beautiful problems and puzzles and really good questions that sort of brought in other topics. So, you know, combining, say, circumference of a circle with a Pythagoras yeah, question, nice. that sort of thing. And then we ended with an assessment. And I didn't include stuff on thirds, like proper, you know, as in where you have to simplify thirds, because I hadn't yeah. done that with them. I didn't do anything on Pythagorean triples, um, which, again, you could do a lovely investigation on that and that whole load of stuff. So students recognize a 5, 12, 13 triangle. I didn't do any of that. I didn't do any proof work. I think that Pythagoras proofs are too complex for year eight. A lot of people disagree yeah. with me on that. Um, and I, there's other stuff. If I wanted to enrich them even further, I could have even taught them some lovely stuff on Fermat's last theorem because that links yes, so nicely to Pythagoras. Yes. So that's kind of going off curriculum. So I didn't even do any of that off curriculum stuff. And I still had 13 lessons and I still didn't use a whole load of wonderful resources that I could have used. You know, I don't believe in, I must use every activity I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. That's silly. But I didn't, I didn't, so I didn't do that. But I, you know, I still could, I, I could have filled more time um, and, and kept them reasoning every lesson and using their brains every lesson. I could have really got them thinking on Pythagoras related stuff. So when I look at that and I think 42% of teachers spend less than four hours, you know, that's quite a contrast to what I do. Well, just give me a sense of this. So just remind me, Joe, that's year eight. Is that right? It pops yeah, up in that's year That's when I do it. Most, actually, most schools do it in year nine. Yes. And then what will happen then in year two? Will it pop back on the scheme of work again um, in year 10? And what, what will be your approach? Then? Well, at my school, we do right angle trigonometry in year nine. And actually yeah. something that quite surprised me there is a lot of schools do that in year 10. But it is on the Key Stage 3 national curriculum. Mm. Yeah, that shouldn't be left till Key Stage 4 because you're actually then, your school is not is not meeting national curriculum requirements. Mm. So actually I'm quite surprised schools, um, you know, I didn't realise that. And I'm really, I'm, I have to, I have to care about that because my school is due to have an Ofsted as a new school. And one of the things that new schools get asked is, are you actually meeting the, requ the requirements of the Key Stage 3 national curriculum? So if we had, if we didn't have trig on our math scheme of work, then we would fail on that, you know, as in yeah. we we would we'd be marked down on that so I'm quite surprised a lot of schools don't do it in year nine but um basically when we do trig in year nine we obviously well I say, I say obviously I assume everyone does this I start with a recap of Pythagoras because obviously it links so nicely with the right angle triangle thing I suppose maybe not everyone does that um also Pythagoras comes up throughout year nine in the warm-up booklets and retrieval yes in a single time and then when we get to year 10 we have advanced trig on the scheme of work which is stuff like exact values and sine and cosine rule. And I, I haven't actually looked, but I'm assuming there's a bit of 3D Pythagoras in there because it will have 3D trigonometry in there. Yes. And so I would do some 3D Pythagoras in there. Got it. And then again, it will be retrieval the whole way then through the rest of year 10 and year 11. And it will come up in loads of different topics as well, won't it? Because you're going to, you can bring Pythagoras into everything. So yes. it's, it's going to start popping up all over the place. Um, so to me, that's like a very sensible Pythagoras journey, which takes you from an introduction in year eight, and then it just keeps coming up the whole way through. And we know that at A level, you use Pyth you have to use Pythagoras mm. fluently in yes. in a whole load of contexts. So it's such a vital skill, and and so I'm quite surprised then that a lot of schools would sort of just spend a couple of lessons on it in year eight. That's interesting. That um, I've got a big question for you, Joe. But any more survey results first? Um, just uh, there was one that I talked about at Research Ed, which which was constructions, and oh, and yeah. this just really interested me on constructions because 
again, the vast majority are spending less than four hours. Now, I don't like teaching constructions, no, so neither. I'm very tempted to spend less than four hours on a topic yep. that I don't like. However, if you look at what's on the key stage three scheme of work, you've got construct a triangle, and there are three different ways you can construct a triangle. Yeah, you know, you can be given the yeah. three sides and be given angles. Construct a perpendicular bisector, construct a perpendicular from or to a point, construct an angle bisector, and an angle of 60 degrees. Now, they're all oh. the kind of basics now i reckon you could probably just about cover that in four lessons but when i did it i started with a lesson on basic compass skills and we were doing Mm. like circles and drawing lovely mandalas and all this sort of nice practice of the skill we did stuff like construct a hexagon um which is you know you do by doing your circle and and that's that's really lovely depth and then there's things like construct a 45 and 30 degree angle where you're bisecting the 90 and the 60. Yeah, yeah. Now that's not specified on the scheme of work, oh, sorry, on the national curriculum, but it just seems like, you know, that if you want to teach for depth, then do that kind of thing, yes. you know, construct a rhombus. Now, yeah, I hate doing all that, but yeah, you know, I, I had to really kind of, force myself to put the effort into it this year because I didn't want to be a hypocrite and rush through the topic that I don't like so I really thought about how can I ensure depth of knowledge on this topic and what can I do that's kind of you know basically taking the the sort of light touch national curriculum and actually exploring it properly so you know it was it's um it is it's harder than it sounds because you know if we if we haven't got time to plan properly or if we if we don't know much about a topic then it is quite hard to teach for depth but um, um, again, interesting how little time people spend on it. Just whilst we're talking constructions, I've made this point before, but I'm just going to make it again, particularly since you've referenced retrieval and your booklets. Constructions, the reason kids are crap at constructions, in my this is my grand theory on this, right? One, yeah. because a lot of teachers don't like teaching it. Um, two, they don't give enough time to teach in it. But the big reason is, how often do constructions come up in retrieval opportunities? Like, do you have constructions in your in your booklets? Um, because it's such a faff, no, right? No, because it, it, yeah, because it's almost like it's impossible unless yeah. you work in a school where every single child has their own equipment. Yeah, yeah. Um, and even then, it's quite hard in our booklet format. It doesn't yeah, really. Yeah, fit. Oh, it's a nightmare. Yeah. It's a nightmare. And it's not a maths bot. It's not on any of yeah. these interactive things, right? And it's same same with transformations to a certain extent or straight line graphs anything that's a yeah. bit of a faff but what i did forget was, it. because you've said this to me before i have made the essay i've learned from you here you, nice. you've changed my life here so in my <laughs> in my year 10 booklets i have started with shape transformations yeah, and the nice. way it's because the way it fits in is i've literally had to do just like uh one question reflection or rotation or whatever but i've, I've really put the effort into changing that because you're right i never had any um geometry mm. or anything that kind of required a bit of equipment or required a bit more space in my warm-ups but because you know I really took your point on that and I haven't put any constructions in there but I have um I have put shape transformations in there so I have sort of made a bit of progress on this I mean after however many years of friendship Joe it's nice that you've taken one thing on board there that's ideal and um, I'm still saving up my big question here Joe. have you any any more survey things you want to share with us um there was a few comments that I thought were quite nice yeah, about sharing. so so one teacher said it drives me nuts that we're expected to get through the topics quickly. I feel the philosophy in our department is the quicker you get through the work, the better the teacher. Um, so, uh, I mean, that's, that's that, that I think is a really common source of frustration amongst yes. teachers. And it is actually a frustration for me as well. Like this idea of um, when you have colleagues who, who rush a lot and they kind of say, oh, I've already finished that finished and I'm it. two yeah. topics ahead. Yes. Um, and, this, you know, that's obviously not, it's not a helpful attitude when people are, especially if you're kind of a new teacher who's not confident in your, in what you're doing and you've got someone who's, 
who's rushing in your department, you're going to kind of copy what they do. Yes. Um, and, you know, I showed at the beginning of my talk some examples of like things that people that rush say. And it's things like, oh, my class has already finished the unit on expanding double brackets. It only took us one problem and they could all do it. Uh, one lesson, <laughs> they could do it. And it's like, yeah, they, maybe they could do it in one lesson because you've taught them like a totally superficial procedural thing there yes. and, and it's a, and they're, they're judging the learning based on the performance and and that's not you know being able to hold up a mini whiteboard in a lesson and show that you've understood the, pro the procedure you've been shown five minutes ago isn't evidence that there's some learning taking place um but yet a lot of people take that as I, it's amazing they all got it I'm going to move on now yes um and I know it's you know it that is, it is good if they can all do it on the mini whiteboard in the lesson but it's you know it's performance rather than learning and mm. I think I I so I showed then an example of um an expanded double brackets thing that involved um a, um a lot more thinking and reasoning needed so I guess my question would be right if you've done it in a lesson and you're confident they can all do it now's your opportunity to give them something that, that they have to yes. that use that that uh, procedure but also involves some reasoning um so it's like something like i showed another example with areas of sectors you'll get some teachers will teach um theta over 360 times pi r squared to find the area of yep. a sector of a circle and they'll say look i taught them the formula we've finished it in a lesson we've moved on we're gonna just, we've just got loads of time to revise now or something and i would say have you seen some of the amazing questions and i showed yeah. an example that you can do to do with areas of sectors that require some pretty deep reasoning you know questions that really get me thinking you know i, I showed an example where it's got kind of squares with bits of circles cut out mm. of them and it really takes a bit of thinking to figure out what how you work out the shaded areas and that formula if you're just teaching them the formula then they're not going to actually have the opportunity to use their brains and to actually do some thinking. So there's that, yeah, that sort of attitude of where people are rushing and saying, oh, but they they could all do it. They're kind of missing the point about how actually they're, they're not giving their students the opportunity to really, to, to really do some reasoning with the kind of knowledge they've given them. So, yeah, so I, I showed some examples of, of sort of that kind of thing. I'll read you a couple more quotes. I like yeah, the quotes are really good. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Um, this one... Um, this was interesting. So, and someone said, our scheme of work is based on a spiral curriculum. We end up repeating topics on a number of occasions, but it always feels so rushed that each time the topic is introduced, it's like starting from square one. Mm. I would rather teach the topic deeply, but less often rather than surface coverage every couple of years, because it rarely sticks. And I think a lot of us have schemes of work like that, where, you know, we just teach the same topic every year. But every time we do it, it does feel like we're starting from scratch, oh, yes. you know, and, and that's that's just a terrible use of time, isn't it? Um, and I know it's quite a hard problem to fix, but it does feel like, you know, if we've got percentages on the scheme of work every year from year seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, and every year, every time it feels like we're having to start again with what's a multiplier, then, you know, it, you, something's gone wrong with the original teaching of that, maybe. I don't know. If you, I mean, on that one, um, I think it's a really interesting one, this. I think as long as you've got good retrieval opportunities scheduled in, so whether yeah. it's the booklets like you talk about, whether it's really well-planned mixed-topic homeworks or starts or whatever it is, it's not as big a problem because you, you cover it in depth in year seven and then it doesn't explicitly appear on the scheme of work in year eight, but it's it's there in all the retrieval opportunities. It's interwoven into yeah. topics coming on. I think... That is fixable if your schemes of work sequencing and your retrieval opportunities are, are well thought through. I think that problem can be alleviated. But yeah, you see that all the time, right, in schemes yeah. of work. You, you see yeah. all the big guns popping up again. Yeah, and definitely. Again. Right, um, now let me ask you this, Joe. So it seems to me this is a big problem. It's 
it's a trap I've fallen into. Certainly in my first kind of five or six years of teaching, it did seem to be a race. And that really resonated when you said that it feels like the good teachers are the ones who finish it first. It's almost mm -hmm. like you're bragging that, you know, you've, you've got through this unit and so on. So you outlined at the start a few kind of causes of this or, or what's to blame. So here are a few, here are the ones that I've kind of jotted down also kind of based on what you said at the start and also a few thoughts. So it could be, teacher knowledge in in two in two different varieties here it could be subject knowledge like not being able to go deep enough into the topic so thinking as you've said there sectors of a circle all right this is as far as i need to go yeah related to that it could be a lack of knowledge of the type of rich resources out there that enable you to to go deep yeah and that came up quite a lot in the comments in the surveys people saying they want to teach in depth they know how to like they they, they, they get the idea of it but they just can't find suitable mm. resources um, and that is quite that's something we should talk about a bit more because actually that's that's really interesting that people are are sort of getting they're getting to the point where they want to go into more depth and they're stumped because they just can't find activity well, well let's 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 just talk about that now because you yeah. love this right i mean this is right up your street you yeah. love it you love a resource so what's the what's the solution to that well, it, that's a really interesting one because um, I actually had someone from, I think they were working in Hong Kong and they messaged me and said that their their solution is to use um, textbooks from Southeast Asia that are full mm. of, of real depth. And it's quite, it's quite ridiculous that we're still in a situation. And she sent me an example of the Index Lodge chapter from this textbook and it was incredible. She told me I can't share it. Um, yeah. but it was really, really amazing um, depth of uh, sort of exercises and activities that we just don't get in this country and, and that's ridiculous that we're still in that situation mm. but I did show in my presentation I did say that there are some solutions and I showed for example MathsPad have recently launched their curriculum booklets and they're really good for like for example they have a year seven chapter on indices and they recommend 13 to 17 hours on it wow. and they've got an absolute ton of stuff that you can choose from and there's really good level of depth I also talked about things like White Rose um, and then also places where you can go to get inspiration on teaching. So like Colin Foster's Instant Maths Ideas website has got really good ideas for every topic. Um, and then there's sort of blog posts and CPD where teachers are starting to explain how to teach in depth. So Paul Rodinson, for example, he's done some blog posts on particular topics, like say probability trees, where he says, take this topic and this is how you can teach mm. it in depth. And I've mm. done the same with my CPD sessions. So there's kind of, but it's not, it's not, it's still not good enough. You know, it's no. still a poor situation in this um, country where we've got, we don't have the textbooks that we, that, that they, that we, they have in some other countries. We don't have the kind of style of textbook. We basically have one massive textbook that covers this huge curriculum, um, but can only have a couple of pages on every yeah. topic. Whereas if you look at my old textbooks from, you know, 50 years ago or longer, they, you know, you'd have a whole book just on algebra. You'd have a whole textbook yes. just for algebra in it. And they used to go into a good level of depth. So, you know, I don't think that the answer is necessarily textbooks, but it is interesting that, that, that people are contacting me saying the solution is in the textbooks from Shanghai and places like that. Um, but yeah, I do think we have some great stuff like MathsPad, but I can't say, you know, there are plenty of times where I am searching for resources and I can't find yes. something right. So, you know, even though I know where to get all the good resources, I am stumped as much as everyone else sometimes. Um, and I, yeah, I, I, I'm, you know, um, 
Colin Foster, Tom Frankham, Dave Hewitt and Chris Shaw are currently working on this big project. Mm. Um, and it's all to do with a uh, a big kind of mass curriculum that they're saying is going to be fully resourced and coherent and like a really well-designed one. I, I wonder whether that's going to be something that really helps us, but that's going to take a long time. Right? So yes. That's going to take years. But, you know, they're going to think, you know, for each topic we teach, you know, what are the things we should be doing for a real depth of teaching and depth of understanding? And, you know, I kind of feel like good things are going to come out of that, but it's going to take years. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I read you actually, there's a good quote here where someone said, um, this teacher saying that she's rewriting the schemes of work to, to give more time for things. But she says, some members of my department are really hesitant about it because they struggle to find ways of engaging and challenging more confident or able students without accelerating them to new content. So they're, they're, they're these, there are people admitting that their their big problem is that they are struggling to find the mm. ways of challenging. In fact, mm. someone else said, uh, the department shares a lot, but sometimes it can be hard to find the extent and amount of challenging questions needed for certain topics. And the really worrying, 39% of teachers in my survey agreed with the statement that the way that they challenge students is by teaching them more advanced topics yeah. and, and that's really interesting so you've got quite a lot 39 percent is quite a lot of teachers who um who don't know how to challenge within topic yes. you know like you quite often get that people moan about teaching place value in year seven and they say why is place value on the scheme work they all did it at primary school they're bored by it but there you can definitely challenge within place mm. value but I think a lot of teachers don't know how to do that or don't know where to get the good resources for challenging within place value. So they accelerate instead. Also, like, for example, if you're teaching rounding, they might say, oh, that's going to be too, I don't know how to, my cars are too good for that. And so I'm going to put them onto bounds. So that's an example of acceleration where you're moving on to something from like the year nine scheme of work in year seven because you don't know how to challenge within the topic. Yes. Um, and that's, yeah, that is, I, you know, I'm not at any point blaming the teachers for this. There's, it's to such a, to a great extent, it's that there's this sort of resources and activities and inspiration just kind of don't exist. It's, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because uh, like, I don't know enough about Hong Kong, the kind of resource scene out there, same with, you know, Shanghai or whatever. Yeah. But I, I, my instinct would be that one advantage we have over here is we have a wider variety. Like I, I wouldn't imagine they would have the amount of blogs and resource websites that we would have because there's simply no need for them, right? As you said, they've got they've got the high quality textbooks with the high quality tasks and so on. Yeah. So we have, in a sense, the advantage that there's a variety of sources out there and to, always new stuff being created, always new inspirational teachers coming up. And you yourself have admitted that you wouldn't like to be directed to use a certain resource and yeah. so on because you like you like finding new stuff. You've got your favorites and, yeah. and, and so on. Do you reckon... Do you reckon all the good stuff's out there, Joe? And it just kind of, it's a kind of curation issue. Or well, do you I, reckon that it's a creation? I don't think there's a curation issue because I am the curator. <laughs> but you're still, you're still hunting for stuff though, right? Well, yeah, there are, it's difficult, isn't it? Because I don't, I don't want anyone thinking that the, the way to teach in depth is to go to Resourceaholic and go to like CERDs and use every single activity mm, listed there. Yeah, yeah. But what the problem is, if you are teaching a really strong class who, who seem to have grasped, say, a procedure very quickly and you don't know how to kind of stretch them, then that's where it's going wrong. And you remember for the MA conference back at um, back at Easter and also for White Rose back in January, I did a talk called uh, 
uh, great tasks or something. I can't remember mm. what I called it. Yeah, and yeah. I, I focused on uh, two different types of tasks. One was tasks where you have to think backwards. Yes. And one was tasks where you, students generate their own examples. Yeah. And that's the kind of ways we should be challenging yeah. our students. It's like, you know, and also things like your um, MathSven's uh, yeah, website, yeah. like basically rich tasks. Um, and in fact, that's what, I mean, that's the answer, isn't it? It's MathSven's.com. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. Yeah. But no, you're right. You're, you're onto something here that it's the same structure of activity can be used in lots of different ways, right? Yeah. Like the Venn diagrams, like always, sometimes, never, all those kind of things. Yeah. Once teachers and the kids get familiar with the structure, it then becomes not easy, yeah. but certainly easier to then start applying that structure to lots of different topics. The problem comes when you're starting from scratch, right? When you've got a topic yeah. where you think, how the hell am I going deeper on this? And you don't have those structures in mind, then you yeah. just googling trying to find yeah, yeah. anything on it yeah because actually one example i gave at research Ed was the area of a triangle and i showed um a couple of examples of available questions you know the ones uh, this is from sort of old c2 where you've got your coordinate geometry question there's a mm. whole load of complex coordinate geometry stuff and at the end it says find the area of the triangle and it's on yeah. a coordinate grid and the yeah, students yeah. always messed it up and one of the ridiculous reasons they messed it up was because they didn't get that they needed two perpendicular lengths yeah, yeah, the yeah, of a triangle. Yeah, yeah. So I talked at Research Ed about the journey of the area of a triangle. Basically, it starts in year six, where the curriculum says, calculate the area of parallelograms and triangles. And I said, at that point, what should year six teachers be doing? Well, they should be introducing the concept, as in the area of a triangle will always be half the area of the parallelogram. Mm, mm. Or often, often that's taught as rectangle, but yeah. really, you know, it's parallelogram. And... Then, then that would then lead on to a formula. So it'd be half base times height, I guess, is the, what they're being taught in year six. And then there'll be a whole load of practice and problem solving. And that's great because it's coming in right at the end of primary. They haven't got much time on it. And that's mm. it. so we want them to introduce the concept and the formula and do some practice. That's great. When you get through to key stage three, and it is specified again on the curriculum, what should be happening then is we should be saying they've done it before. They know this. They know they understand why it's half and they know the formula. So we're gonna quickly remind them of it. Um, we're gonna reinforce the concept with some examples and then some non-examples, and we're gonna really focus on this perpendicular thing. Mm. We're gonna do a whole load of stuff on the use of the perpendicular in this formula and why we do that, and, and give them all sorts of examples where we have perpendiculars. Then we're gonna, this is still so it's year seven, we're gonna interweave the area of a triangle with a load of other stuff, like algebra and coordinates and fractions. So they've had that introduction in year six and we're taking something they already know and we're interweaving it with a load of new maths they've learned. And then we're also saying, right, you already know the area of a triangle. So we're going to use it as an opportunity to do some reasoning and some problem solving. So we're going to do some compound shapes. We're going to do some contextual problems. We're going to do some working backwards. You know, here's the area of the triangle. What are the lengths? And basically all of this in year seven should be deepening the knowledge. Mm. And there's a whole load. And I showed loads of examples of really good area of a triangle, things you can do in year seven that involve reasoning. But I'll tell you what actually I think happens in year seven because I've looked at some from popular websites, websites that I know people are downloading their slides from, and what it's getting is two slides. It's getting a slide which reminds them of the formula, and it's getting a slide with a couple of area of triangle practice questions, like standard yeah. ones, yeah. and then they're moving on. So I'm not saying let's spend weeks on it. I'm spending one lesson on it, but I'm spending an hour compared to what I'm seeing when I'm looking at these other um, these slides that people are using, is, which is two slides. And actually, I think that people who are doing this in two slides are missing the opportunity to use area triangle for reasoning. 
And I think they're missing an opportunity to really explore those non-examples and those examples and look at that use of perpendicular and to really make sure students understand that it needs to be perpendicular lengths. So it, I feel like, you know, we have got a lot of resources available um, and, and some of them could be better, you know, because a lot yes. of them are rushing things. In If you download a PowerPoint and it's got two sides on over a triangle, then that's probably what you're going to do. Whereas if you're kind of sitting down and thinking, right, how can I actually build, you know, do something useful here that's different to what I did at primary school? Um, then there are there aren't sort of necessarily slides we can download that have got that all built in. And in my session, I showed some examples of the stuff I use. A lot of it was from MathsPad, not all of it. You know, we've got places like Don Stewart and MathsPad and all sorts of places that have some great area of a triangle stuff, um, which is definitely suitable for year uh, seven and really quite challenging for your kind of top set year seven as well. It's interesting. It, it, um, yeah, I mean, you, you, you're a big fan of Paul Rowlandson's work as well. I, I always think yeah. about his parallelogram one where he shows um, mm-hmm. a load of questions on calculate the area of a parallelogram. And essentially then just removes the parallelogram and shows that very quickly it just becomes an exercise of multiply the two numbers yeah. that you see together. And that's true of a lot of exercises in um, PowerPoints that you download or even yeah. printed resources where very quickly it shifts away from the intended object of focus or the, the, the concept the kids are focusing on to simply some arithmetic exercise, yeah. whether it's area of a triangle, multiply the two numbers and divide them by two. And, you know, once kids have done a couple of those, that's where you get the kind of cliche that there's no point in them doing 10 when they've done the first two, but there is a point in them doing 10. If all of a sudden things start changing and non-examples are in there or other concepts are interwoven. So yeah, I, yeah, just, just kind of going back to to my list here, Joe. So I think that's definitely a massive part of it. Teachers Mm -hmm. not knowing where to go to get the resources that feels, that feels incredibly significant yeah and actually just to put a number on it i had 19 percent of of, uh, teachers said they struggle to find tasks to engage their students 14 percent struggle to find tasks to challenge their students so there's actually it's it's still quite a lot you know they're they're not massively high numbers but there's i think a lot of people are struggling with the resources yeah that feels that feels like yeah a biggie schema work feels like it's a big one like if you have in inverted commas, a bad scheme of work. And by bad scheme of work, I'm saying one that crams in, you know, eight topics into a term or whatever it may yeah. be and specifies three lessons for fractions and stuff like yeah. that. And there is that imperative that you have to fit it into that because you've got an assessment coming yeah. up in, you know, by yeah. half term. You're a bit screwed there. You're not you're not doing it in depth there. So I think schemes of work have a lot to I'll, yeah, but to, to some extent, you know, because I what I did with this was I went through I just I don't want I don't want heads of department who've built a scheme of work where it's like one week on this, one week on this, one week on this. And I expect they were quite frustrated that when they built it, because yeah. if you try and build a scheme of work in this country, you, you're tearing your hair out because it doesn't yes. seem like there's enough time. Yes. And actually what I did and I showed this at Research Ed, I went through the whole key stage three and key stage four curriculum. I wrote down all the topics kind of like a like just a word for each topic basically yeah. there's a lot of detail in there and I assigned how long I want to spend on them and it's, oh, okay. it's my That's personal good. decision and That's I haven't good. been I haven't been ridiculous on things you know I haven't said that I want to spend forever you know but I have been I have thought if I want to teach it in depth how long personally am yeah. I going to spend and when I've added them all up <laughs> I worked out that over key stage three and four I had 130 hours deficit <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, so I, I, you know, basically i need i need yeah. either a 20 percent reduction in the national curriculum content for me to be yes. able to teach how i want to teach 
or I need to reduce all my timings by 20% and then it will just about fit. Um, So I do, you know, when you do your, when you build your scheme of work, um, because what I've tried, because I've got a presentation coming up on scheme of work design. So what I've tried to do is I've tried to take the five years and just very high level, just see if I can sort of map it all in. And it it is really difficult to do Mm. because it just feels like there just aren't enough, um, there just aren't enough terms in in the sort of period of time between the beginning of year seven and the end of year 11 there's just not enough time to fit these topics in properly um the one one of the problems part of the problem is the fact that schools are repeating things too much um but i think even if you don't repeat things all the time it's still a struggle to i agree i agree and again we're going to talk about that just to wrap things up yeah. um, a little later because we've both been doing a lot of thinking um, about that that's fascinating well that that ticks off another thing because the national curriculum has, has obviously yeah. got a big role to play if there's a, a certain amount of stuff that needs fitting in and there's just not enough time to fit it in again we're going to struggle with depth the other one that springs to mind is something you alluded to before and i think kind of continuity of classes plays a big role here because if you know if you pick up a class in year seven and you know you chances are you're going to have them right through to year 11 the incentives are all there to teach in depth because if you you're going to be thinking okay if i get this right in year seven even if we don't quite get through all the year seven schema work if i get these topics right it's going to save me time in the long run whereas if you know you're going to have a different class next year your incentive's a bit wrong, right? Because your incentive there is, let me teach them the year seven scheme of work so they can do the year seven exam at the end of it. Yeah. Because again, that's you'd have to be some cr- crazy person not to think like that. So do you get a sense that that's, that's playing a role? Yeah, and it's like a it's, a, it's a performance culture. And in fact, you could argue that the the sort of the way that most schools design their performance management um, kind of really yeah. motivates this because quite often your performance management in school, so whether you meet your targets mm. and kind of, in some schools whether you get your kind of incremental pay rise depends on the results of your class um, and you are totally um, motivated to into a short-term performance kind of way of thinking so you're thinking all I care about is that my year eight class do all do well in the end of year exam and I'll achieve that any way possible so you know we will do a whole load of revision and we'll rush through this stuff and I don't care about next year because actually what I care about is um and and actually that sounds that's that sounds a bit negative to teachers because I actually don't believe teachers think like that you know generally when we're not motivated by um by money and that sort of thing and it's you know it's not even like it's not like we're getting a bonus anyway so it's not really it's not a money thing but we schools do put a lot of pressure on us to do well in end of year for our classes to do well in end of year assessments and it takes away from this sort of very long-term view we should have where we should look at every student as one that could do a-level maths and we should make sure we're preparing them for that all the time um but yeah we're just it's the way systems are built it doesn't really um doesn't really help Interesting. Interesting. Well, um, I'm ready, Joe, to move on to the curriculum sequencing, because I think that the, the depth side of things will, will come up again here. But was there anything more you wanted to say um, on the um, on the depth from, from either your research ed session or anything else? That no, I think, I mean, you know, it's, it's, um, it's the, the good thing about, so the session I did for LaSalle, where I showed examples, I showed how I taught, say, angles in parallel lines and how I filled my lessons. It's difficult, isn't it? Because someone then contacted me saying he found it really helpful looking at my my sequence plans basically so I showed three of my own sequence plans Mm. and the way I do the way I approach my planning is if I look at the scheme of work and see that the next topic I'm teaching is say thirds 
I will sit down and say, right, I'm going to, this is, this is what I want to teach. And this is approximately when I think, so I think I might do first lesson on, you know, uh, simplifying second lesson on adding or whatever. And, mm. I, and I'll literally like write that out as like on a little grid of it's going to be this. And I'll say, right, I think it's going to take me about two weeks, but mm. I could adjust that because it could be that they really struggle with this lesson. Yeah. So I'm, I'm flexible on it. So I do have sequence plans. And what I do is I show the students at the start of the of a unit. So I'll say, right, we're doing, we're starting thirds now. This is how we're going to cover it. And then each lesson, I'm kind of crossing off where we are. And oh, I'm okay. saying, look, yeah. we've done this so far. And this is where we are now. And, you know, this, nice. so they can see the progress through. Um, and, but I kind of do them as I get, I haven't got them, I haven't got every sequence mapped out. I do them yeah. as I get to them. Um, and like I say, I tweak them quite a lot. So quite often I'll think, well, you know, that actually, that, that didn't work well and the next year I'll do it differently um but he was saying oh he found my uh, one for LaSalle helpful where I showed my three sequence plans and he was kind of suggesting that I might sort of publish my sequence plans yeah, for everything I teach it. to give people inspiration but I just I'm just not sure because it's so class dependent isn't it, it depends on the class you're teaching in front of you and I yeah. wouldn't give the same sequence plan to someone who's teaching a very different group of students yeah. so I'm just not I'm really torn on it really because I think it it might help students you know it's interesting because my head of maths writes little sequence plans in our scheme of work and that she they're not sort of she doesn't say we have to follow them she just puts them in there in case any of our less experienced yeah. teachers yeah. want a bit of an idea of kind of how they what sort of order they should teach things in um, and whenever I look at hers I always think oh they're just a bit they're a bit quicker than I do so mine are always a bit longer than hers but there's nothing wrong with hers you know they, they're good sequence plans it just sort of and she's a really good teacher and it just sort of shows that you know they've got no two teachers are going to write the same sequence plan yes. for their topic um, it just shows how different we all are um, but yeah, it was an interesting idea. I was sort of toying with the idea of having a little section on my blog where I, sh- I just share my sequence plans. That's interesting. Um, but yeah, I'm just, I just think it would have to come with such a caveat, wouldn't yeah, it? Like yeah. every class is different. You should not be trying to stick to the exact same lessons that I've, that I've planned out. I think it'd be super popular, as you say, it'd be popular for, for exp- experienced teachers, but certainly for, for less experienced yeah. teachers. That'd be really interesting. Yeah. And also it goes back to one of the first lessons from this podcast many, many years ago, which was a game changer for me and it's so obvious to say now and that is when you start planning a topic you plan out the whole topic you think about everything that you cover as opposed to what I used to do which was just take it lesson at a time or maybe two or three lessons at a time and also having that flexibility in there saying I probably will cover this in this lesson but then not being a problem if you need to shift a bit around but the thing is it all all of that takes planning time and yeah, yeah. we just, you know, at the moment, I'm in a good place because I, for my always, for the first topics of the year, I plan it in the summer holidays. I mean, yeah, that yeah. makes sense because particularly because I'm on the leadership team, I have this like horrific first couple of weeks of the year where I'm getting loads of systems in place and setting up student timetables and stuff. Um, but so I'm, you know, at the moment, I've got these great lessons going on that I spent ages planning in the holidays. But as soon as, you know, I get the term sort of, you know, yeah. things start getting busy and I, I start, you know, I end up with, oh, I've got 10 minutes to plan this year, 10 lessons. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, you know, no wonder my, my teaching won't be as high quality as it should be. And, you know, this is obviously a massive problem for all teachers. We you know we don't have the time to plan um, like, you know, we don't have the time to think in depth about our lessons. Mm. So how can our lessons, you know, be, uh, how can, how can we teach in depth if we don't get time to plan in depth? Interesting. Interesting. Right. Well, what we're going to do to finish shows, we're, we're both going to do a bit of a tease here because you're going to be teasing the, what you're going to be talking about at the next maths conf. And when is that, Joe? Just remind us when. Is it like October or something? <laughs> it's, um, let me think. Or is it I south of feeling, France as well? Yeah, no, I think it's, I, I think it, 
the funny I think it's actually a really nice day in that it's because I get a two-week half term and I think it's at the beginning of my two-week half term nice. that's really nice. I have a feeling it's 15th of October but I, I think so um okay. and it's in Ashford in Kent um which is a bit of a pain for everyone I'm afraid I mean um I don't know um I don't know how uh whether, the problem is it's the same day as Research Ed Kent or something. So it's, oh, got, right, okay. it's a clash as well as being a bit yeah, difficult yeah. to get to. But it's also the first in-person maths yeah, conference yeah, yeah, yeah. since um, March... Uh, the Manchester one. I can't yeah. even remember. Was it March 2020? Mm. Yeah. That's right. Um, yeah. yeah. And which was... Um, which is a really long time. So I am I am very excited about a proper maths conference. So and I might, actually, gonna... I might actually get a bit of an audience this time. Well, <laughs> well, so we'll see. We'll see. So you're, you're going to be talking about curriculum sequencing. So we've talked about um, sequencing of topics yeah. like within a topic, but curriculum sequencing. Now, the reason I'm interested about this is what well, I'm always interested about this. Yeah. But I've been doing a lot of thinking about this. Um, I'm doing a bit of a secret project. I don't, don't think I can quite say who it's with or what it's for just yet. Okay. But I've had to use data from diagnostic questions to see if it makes sense to teach certain topics before other topics. And that's led me to some quite interesting findings with some quite interesting implications for year seven schemes of work, year eight schemes of work, and so on and so forth. So I'll probably what I'll probably do is share a couple of those findings, Joe. But what, what, can you give us a bit of a teaser of what you've been working on and, and what you're going to be talking about at LaSalle? Yeah, so um, I, I'm interested in curriculum sequencing with all sorts of hats on. I mean, I, for my school, I, I have sort of curriculum roles. Um, I don't, I didn't write the scheme of work at my school, but I kind of oversee it. But also, I look at curriculum across the board. So, how many lessons does maths get and stuff? So, I mean, I, and it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because every school, <laughs> it's like it used to be that every school wrote their own scheme of work and it was a ridiculous situation where we had like thousands of people all doing the yes. same thing and we were actually and now things have changed a bit where you've actually got um quite a nice situation where people are starting to use things like white rose and arc and and kangaroo maths and there's there there seems to be a, a lot of schools that are saying actually this is ridiculous for us to spend yeah. all this time um working on something that someone else has done so that's quite good but still we're in a situation where Lots of people are doing, uh, you know, I've not worked in, in schools that for, you know, everywhere I've worked has had a different scheme of work and a different kind of order. Yeah, um, and and it's, it's, it's sort of all, or sometimes seems a bit arbitrary. It's like, you know, we're just, things are just sort of put in. And, and the question is, are people thinking about where they're putting yeah. these things in? And is there a good reason? Now, I will be, I, I, as I said before, I'll be offsetted soon. And we know that these days when offset come in and do a deep dive in maths, they can speak to any member of the maths department and they can ask a curriculum sequencing questions. So it's actually something that with my team, we're sort of, you know, we're not, I'm not going to pretend that we're not doing a little bit of Ofsted prep, given that we know we are going to get our first ever Ofsted. We do a little bit where we say to the team, like for the topic we're teaching at the moment, if Ofsted were to say to us, why are we doing it now? You know, can we answer that question? Because it can't just be now the head of maths that knows the answer to that. Mm. It needs to be that everyone knows why did the head of maths put that that uh, subject, sorry, that topic in that place. So that's so that sort of ha having those conversations in my department has kind of led me to sort of think about this um, this presentation I want to do for LaSalle, where I'm saying, um, you know, I'm looking at how do maths teachers answer that question? Like, what are there any right answers? Because mm. I'm not sure there are. Um, and like, you know, how can we kind of look at, let, 
I want to look sort of across the board at how the different schemes of work that a lot of schools are using are doing it. Like, why is White Rose so different to, I don't yes. know, ARC? I've not looked at ARC. Yeah. And, and no, why, they are very different. Are they? And, 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 like, and which one's best? And how can we possibly know which one's best? And how can we even assess whether they're, you know, whether which one's most effective? And also why in America they couldn't be more different you know they do like yeah. a whole year of algebra and then yes, a whole year of geometry yes. so i think there's like i mean i could sort of this could be like a thesis or something you know this is yeah. this is like a massive thing um but there's really my presentation is just going to have three main focuses because otherwise i think you know it, it really could go on forever yeah. i'm basically i'm talking about prerequisites so what topics have to be placed after other topics for the yes. reason of you know there's a prerequisite there you know you can't do probability if you don't know what a fraction is yeah, that kind of yeah, thing yeah. um the other the second part of my presentation is about interweaving opportunities so how can uh, you know where are there you know when you've taught something um where can it come up later and you know for example should you put angles before equations in year seven or should you put um equations for angles um mm. and which is the best placement in terms of where you can do some interweaving um, and then the last bit of my presentation is going to be about kind of common practice and just sort of having a look at from my survey that I did for the research ed talk, I can say when things are taught. So, for example, nice. like I said, I can see that in my survey response uh, from the respondents to my survey, I know that actually most schools are teaching Pythagoras in year nine. And that yes. kind of surprised me because I thought it was year eight just because that's what my school yeah, does. Yeah. So I'm showing a few of those survey results as well um, and also kind of uh, showing a kind of idea for my five-year scheme of work but I haven't spent much time on it I've thought about it just very quickly um but just sort of thinking about you know things that I would definitely put in certain places interesting and it would be it'd be a fascinating session Joe and I, I, I don't know if I'll be able to, to to come myself if I was coming I'd definitely see you that would be you know, that, <laughs> that's a legal legal requirement <laughs> but um I think regardless of whether I, I I see you I think we'll need to have another chat ideally on the podcast about this because Again, I'm, I'm knee deep into thinking about this now. So a couple of things. One, so just to give listeners a bit of background here, the way the way we've we've done this is my colleague Simon, who me and Simon set up diagnostic questions about six, seven years ago now, something like that. He's a PhD data whiz, left, right and center. So we've got 200, about 250 million answers on diagnostic questions wow. now. And what's, what Simon can do, what's really interesting is he can see, he can take any child and see, okay, right, you you got this question right, yeah. but then you also got this question wrong. And he can look for patterns. Is there a and if that if that if that trend starts to happen with a hundred kids or a thousand kids, that kids are getting this question right but this question wrong, and maybe they're answering this question before this question, then maybe that starts to say something about well, if we flip the order around and we have a look at kids who answered this question before this question, maybe it suggests that there's a better order oh, to teach things. I was going to say, like, how do you know when they're taught things? But you can yeah, tell. Yeah, we've got all the times. Yeah, yeah, we've got all the timestamps and yeah. all that kind of stuff. So yeah. it's really interesting. So it's part of a big project, this. The, the, and again, I'll be honest with you, when, when, he, when, when the results came out from this first model, some of the conclusions were ridiculous, right? <laughs> because every now and again, we'll get something where there'll be a skew because a question will be tagged with a certain topic, 
but we it may be a really easy question for a difficult topic whereas you you as we've spoken about before you could tag a question with place value but it's an absolute stinker of a question because it requires a real depth of knowledge so this is why qlas are so useless because yes problem yeah yeah exactly now in future iterations of the model we've got measures of difficulty based on the proportion of kids who get them right and so on so simon's going to refine the model but it was coming out with things like you should teach algebraic fractions in year seven and all this kind of stuff i was like what is this but anyway once we filtered out that kind of stuff there's a couple of really interesting things came out so i'll just share one big one with you so we discussed about that we discussed this at research ed and that is that negative numbers in particularly operations with negative numbers should probably be taught a lot later than they are in many schemes of work mm. now the reason the model comes up with this the re- sorry the reason i've interpreted it this way is basically simon has a load of arrows on these uh, on these um on this diagram and he has all topics and a lot of arrows going in and out and if the topic's got a load of arrows going into it it means there's a lot of prerequisites that depend you've got to get right first and what was interesting about negative numbers is a real solid knowledge of fractions seem to be really important to understand negative now that's not not something i wouldn't put together you know necessarily put together but this is the beauty of this it's kind of taking our subjectivity as math teachers and our prior experience just out of it for a bit and just letting the model, you know, letting the actual yeah. data say say something. And sometimes you can dismiss it as being wrong, but sometimes you look at that and think, oh, I don't know. Things like real life graphs should come before negative numbers, according to the model. And you look at many schemes of work and negative numbers is really early on in year seven, right? Yeah. And of course, kids have experienced yeah. it in year four, five and six. So one of the decisions as I'm putting this scheme of work together is to move negative numbers either to the very end of year seven yeah. or potentially into year eight. I've not fully, fully decided yet. So that's that's one interesting thing. I mentioned real life graphs. Um, again, the data would suggest from Simon's model that should be taught pretty early on in year seven. And that's quite nice because it's quite a nice, interesting bit of maths and, and so on. So there's a, that's a funny one, real life graphs. I mean, a lot of people, I, I don't even know where it is in my scheme of work. I don't think we got it on there. I mean, it should be no. this number. But like, and it's going to come up a couple of times as well because it gets hard later on, right? So the kids yeah. have got to know the gradients and speed and all that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, but interesting. I, but oh. it is quite an interesting one. And there's a few other results, which again, I, I probably won't share here, but I just wanted to tell you two decisions I'm making about this scheme of work separate to what this model is showing. And I th- hopefully you'll find this quite interesting. The first is Venn diagrams um, are going to come really, really early on in year mm-hmm. seven, the second topic, in fact, in year seven, yeah. because it will then allow us to use the structure of a Venn diagram yeah. to do the rich tasks that we talked about. So yeah. all the sorting activities, if, if you want kids to be able to do a rich Venn diagram activity on properties of shapes, on fractions, on mm. negative numbers, unless they are really fluent in the structure of a Venn diagram, you're going to be in a load of trouble because they're going to be thinking yeah. about the structure as opposed to the, the, the task. So Venn diagrams really early. I think that logic used to be... I, I it don't is know. CIMT, isn't it? It's the first yeah, thing yeah, in CIMT, your seven. Yeah, and I always think, I don't. maybe that was a curriculum from before I was a maths teacher mm. that CIMT based that on. But also if you look at a lot of my old maths textbooks really feature logic kind of right at the beginning of the year seven. And I think it's for a similar reason, right? It's so you can then apply that logic to, to, to other things. So. Also, it's so, just it's just a nice you know lo- nice. math based on logic and, and also no prerequisites there so you can yeah. you can put it in at the start of year seven and it fits quite nicely and it's it's just a good um you know anyone can anyone can get stuck into that it's quite and, a low floor high and the way i'm thinking of it as well is that if you imagine and i'm thinking maybe two weeks on venn diagrams because yeah. what you can then do is once kids are familiar with the structure of a venn diagram you can use the venn diagram activities 
to revisit the primary school content. So instead of, you know, doing just retrieval activities on year five and year six stuff, why not actually use a rich activity within the context of a Venn diagram to yeah. revisit some of the year six things and so on. Yeah. So that's one decision. Yeah. Venn diagram's early. I'm quite happy with that. The controversial one, though, is that year seven is going to be very, there's going to be very few new topics on paper in year seven. So I know White Rose kicks off with sequences. I know your schema work, I believe, kicks off with algebra in year seven because it's new. It's new math to the kids. And I certainly see that argument. The reason I'm going to focus, I'm leaving algebra a little bit later. And the reason that if you were to look at the year seven scheme at first glance, it may actually resemble a year six scheme of work is almost to force the teachers who will be teaching it to go deep. Because yeah. you, you, if you've got three weeks allocated, as you say, on place value, and you've actually wrapped it up in after a lesson, well, what the hell are you going to do with the rest of it? And that's yeah. where the scheme will then be have some really rich, interesting tasks that then teachers can do. So I think there's potentially an advantage, certainly in the in the era that we're in now, where kids last couple of years of primary school has been messed up a bit by COVID and so on, yeah. that actually starting with familiar material but going deeper maybe uh, a, a, a sensible decision I don't know so that's just a couple of headline figures what, what do you reckon Joe? It's, yeah it's interesting because we like I say we start with algebra and, and I, that was a bit of a risk and, and it was like you know I know a lot of people argue the reason for it is because you know they come into secondary school all excited and then when they yeah. do stuff they've seen before yes they get they get really you know they get really miserable about maths so we moved algebra to the beginning. And then actually, we don't, bizarrely, we don't even, men- negatives is not a topic on our schemes of work anywhere. Because the negatives comes in with the algebra and we teach yeah. it through substitution. Yes. So there's no actual teaching directly of negatives, but it's like, you know, we're substituting negatives. And so therefore, we have to teach negatives. But it's not, you know, I taught year eight index laws this week and we had the multiplication law and I had negative indices and they yeah, were just having yeah. to hand together and they couldn't do it. Um, and, I, and now I'm thinking, what was I doing there? Because um, you know what I said about when I taught Pyth- Pythagoras yeah. and I started with rounding. If I'm teaching, I don't know why I didn't do this. You know, I never learned from my own mistakes. And I've had this every year. I've just taught index laws and I should have started with a bit yeah, of negative revision yeah. because now what's happening is they're struggling with the, ne- the index laws questions. And I'm saying, um, oh, it's because, you know, you've all struggling with negative numbers. Everyone always struggles with negative numbers. But then I'm not saying, hold on a second. Wait, we're going to go off and do a lesson on yes, that and we'll come back. Um, but yeah, the, ne- the negative numbers thing, I-, I don't actually know what the answer is there because I just I just can't figure out. But there's definitely you're right. It's not what we're doing at my school is not working with negatives. The fact yeah. we do it right at the beginning and we sort of shove it in with the algebra. Um, I love the idea of the Venns being um, early in the year. But again, the there's trying to fit all the national curriculum in and yeah. saying yeah. I can't spend two weeks on Venns because no, I don't, I don't have that. the time. We shouldn't be in that position. No. We should have a national curriculum that actually makes sense. Because you know I get four hours a week to teach math. Some schools don't get that much time. And yet they're, so how are they fitting it all in? Know, it must be even harder. So I don't, we shouldn't be in a situation where we're saying, we know that for the best interest of the students, we should be putting this Venn diagram thing at the beginning. But actually, then we're all anxious about running out of time. What we actually need is a national curriculum that um, that is sort of designed for depth. And I just don't believe, I think ours is designed to just fit in as many random bits as possible. <laughs> and it's really frustrating. Can we have a national curriculum reform again? I think that will quite annoy a lot of teachers, so probably not. Um, but yeah, um, it's, 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 I'll be fascinated well, to see the outcome of all your work. Well, I think what we need to do, Joe, 
is we'll have another chat on the podcast after obviously after research uh, sorry after maths comp yeah. after i've done a bit more work on this because you'll have done a lot more thinking about it yeah. i'll have done a lot more thinking about it and i think this could be something that will it's obviously interesting to teachers well i hope it is anyway because yeah. everyone teaches a scheme of work and that scheme of work is in in a certain order and yeah. maybe we could even hey you know what we could do we could go bigger we could get someone from white rose on we could get someone from Archon to yeah. explain the thinking behind their ordering because white rose changed theirs quite drastically right because it didn't used to start with sequencing that's the second yeah. iteration that did that so it'll be interesting just to get their perspective on things yeah let's go big let's do a yeah, sequencing yeah. big episode the thing is right. it is it is such a massive part Huge. of every maths teachers like it, it really is like this is it I don't, I don't, the thing is, is there research that shows how important the ordering is mm. on the outcomes? I don't know. Um, someone should do some research on that. Um, yes. But yeah, it's, it is, so it is, like you say, even if you're not the person writing it, every teacher is teaching a certain order. Um, and so this is interesting to, to everyone, or it should be interesting to everyone. But um, yeah, it's, and also like it does, you know, it, there, there are times where I'm teaching things and I'm thinking this is in a stupid place, like this shouldn't yeah. be here because we haven't taught yeah. that thing yet. Um, so actually there are, there's a whole, it's, it's just, it's something that kind of affects everything we do as math teachers. So it's a really integral part of our jobs. It does. And I'll leave you with this one other thing as well. There was in this big map that Simon produced, there wasn't a single topic that didn't have any arrows either going to it or out of it. So it suggested yeah. that even something like constructions, yeah. there are certain things that need to come before and certain things that need to come. That's before, interesting is, because in my slides on prerequisites, there's a few topics that I'm really struggling. Yeah. To think what are the prerequisites? And it's, that was the thing. Like they, they weren't, it's almost as if we need another name for them because they were not, they, it was almost like they were not prerequisites to understand the topic, but kids for some reason needed to have experienced this thing first. So it's, there must be something hidden in there. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. What, That's really what interesting. Is. I think what's going to happen yeah. is I'm going to do my big presentation and then you're going to come out of all this stuff and it'll turn out that I was wrong about everything. Well, it could be that I'm talking a load of bollocks as well. That's, <laughs> that's the other thing. So who, who knows? Who knows? Right. Okay, Joe. Well, we'll wrap it up there, but we've got a date, a podcast date, hopefully with some guests and we'll right. do a big deep dive into sequencing. Well, it's been, lovely as ever speaking to you and um, fingers crossed people will get to see you in person at MathsConf or another conference uh, coming soon and yeah thanks as always for your time joe morgan thank you craig so there you have it. There was my interview with the wonderful Joe Morgan. She's an absolutely brilliant guest to have on the show. Big, big fan of Joe. Anyway, just a few takeaways from me. I promise I won't keep you too long for this uh, first podcast of the new season. Um, I just wanted to touch upon the three themes that um, I spoke about with Joe. First, uh, many of you will be listening to this in the midst of September. Perhaps you've been back a week, a week and a half, two weeks, something like that. Um, and you may well still be feeling incredibly apprehensive about this forthcoming uh, new school year. Now, that may be because you're a new teacher, perhaps you're an NQT, maybe you're a student teacher um, about to go into your first school placement in the next month or couple of months or so. Or maybe you're a fairly uh, experienced teacher, or maybe you've just moved school or something like that. And it's completely normal, of course, to be to be apprehensive. It's I could never sleep uh, the, uh, the the day before returning. Even like the day before coming back after half term was always a dodgy night's sleep um, for me. But if we put a bit of a positive spin on this, I sound like one of these self help gurus here. And um, it's a chance for new opportunities. And to kind of really drill down into the practicalities of this, um, I've recorded over 200 episodes of this podcast now. And 
often a lot of the strategies that we talk about with guests, it's quite difficult to bring into play kind of halfway through a school year because norms, routines, styles have already been established. But the start of a new school year with a new class is a fantastic time to do a bit of a reset and to try something that perhaps you've been wanting to try for a long time. So maybe it's something like uh, delivering a worked example in a new way, using silent teacher or using some of the um, variation or self-explanation effects I talk about in my, in my new course that's linked to in the show notes. Did you see that brilliant plug for that there? Or maybe it's something completely different, like some of the motivation techniques that Pets McRae spoke about on the podcast, or some of the behavior things we've heard about from the likes of Tom Bennett. Anything that you've heard in the past um, on the podcast that you think, oh, you know what, I've been wanting to give that a go, or maybe you've tried it and it hasn't quite worked, uh, now's, a, now's a really good opportunity uh, to, to do that. So um, a good way to get your head around and, and remind you of some of these ideas is just to look at the um, the podcast index page where I link to all my episodes, and there's always a link to that um, in the show notes. And that'll just remind you of some of the guests that have been on, and maybe you could um, dip straight into one of those episodes, and maybe just skip right to the end where I ramble on and do my takeaways if you want a bit of a <laughs> slightly concise summary of what we've talked about. And that may remind you of some of the ideas that you've wanted to try in the past, but, but um, haven't been able to because it's been, been mid-year. So as I say, new year, very apprehensive, completely normal, but um, it's a time for new opportunities. Uh, right, last two things. Uh, depth, the depth in curriculum that Joe spoke about. Fascinating survey results, right? I found those really interesting. But also, um, kind of not surprising, when Joe was speaking about those modal answers, um, and I was looking at um, the last scheme of work, I taught with in, in our school in Bolton, very similar to what a lot of teachers were, were mentioning there, and particularly this idea of the same topics bubbling up year after year explicitly on the scheme of work, and essentially just feeling like you're never really getting anywhere. You know, after a few lessons, maybe you make a little bit more progress than you did in the previous year, but it's this constant retreading of making sure kids are secure with the fundamentals, and that takes ages and so on. And I really do think depth is the answer to this a rejigging of the scheme of work so it's much longer on um, topics when students first encounter them. But then, as I mentioned to Joe, if you're going to do that, the only way kids are going to remember them, the depth is going to really help. If we use um, Robert Bjork's language here, the depth is going to really help boost the storage strength of those memories. It's really going to make sense to students. It's going to be connected to other ideas. But if we also want to make sure that kids can retrieve them, those therefore to boost the retrieval strength, we've got to provide retrieval opportunities at regular intervals across the school year. And that's the hardest thing to, to get right, I think. So let's say, for example, we spend four weeks in year seven on fractions. We nail fractions. The kids are experts at everything to do with fractions. We've gone super, super deep. They understand what a fraction is. They can do all the operations. They can link it together to different, different mathematical ideas. Well, over the remainder of year seven and through year eight and through year nine and through year 10, those retrieval opportunities have got to be there. And they could be explicit ones. So we could just have a standalone fractions question in a starter or in a low stakes quiz or in a do now, whatever, whatever we choose to call them. Or those ideas could be woven into future topics, whether it's area and perimeter, whether it's algebra, whatever, whether it's some geometry topic, whatever it may be. So if we can go deep, we've got to also schedule retrieval. And that, that's often the bit that gets 
left out, I think. And that's why I think teachers and, and kids get really frustrated with, with going deep because you think, right, I've spent four weeks on this and then next year the kids can't remember a single thing. So then the kind of default is, ah, right, okay, the, the way to do it must be to keep reteaching these topics explicitly on the schema work every year. And then as soon as you start doing that, you lose all the opportunities to go deep because you simply don't have any time. So my takeaway there is, Go, if you go in deep, schedule in the retrieval opportunities. And I definitely think going deep is, is the way forward. And there's some absolutely brilliant resources out there. Um, of course, we've got this problem, as, as Joe and I spoke about, about the search time to find these. Uh, Joe's website is, is a great kind of first place to look at this. And then you have the classic uh, Don Stewart stuff. And you'll all have your favorites. And I'm assuming many schools organize their favorites quite nicely in folders on the shared drive and so on and so forth. So if there's opportunities to go deep and staff have got um, resources and ideas available to them and you can cover them in departmental meetings and talk about them and so on that really sets up a really nice environment for, for both teaching and learning mathematics um, and the final thing is sequencing now again apologies for doing kind of a bit of a teaser and being a bit secretive about this but as i say this is something i'm, I'm work, working on in fact today uh, on this day i'm recording these takeaways i'm going deep myself into into sequencing it's a fascinating area. It's really fascinating to see how different schemes of work do things, whether, as I say, it's ARC or White Rose or, or individual school schemes of work. Loads of things to consider, and, and Joe outlined um, a few of those in terms of prerequisites, interweaving, and so on and so forth. But, yeah, I'm finding some really interesting things from our data about topics that perhaps you wouldn't think need to come before other ones, but maybe it's a good idea to. But I, um, I promise I'll, I won't be secretive for too much longer about this. I'll, I'll do a, a big reveal um, at some point in the future. Anyway, all that remains for me to do, um, oh, I should have said, by the way, on the sequencing thing, it's worth, again, having a look at your scheme of work and just looking at the order of things and, and seeing if they make sense. Is there a logic to the ordering um, or is it kind of a bit random and is that a good thing, a bad thing and, and so on? It's. Uh, I think this episode is a good one to have your scheme of work uh, with you. I should have said that at the start, shouldn't I? So you can uh, uh, compare and contrast what Joe and I are talking about. Anyway, I'm rambling now. I'll shut up. So all that remains for me to do is thank Joe Morgan. Uh, for being a, a fantastic guest uh, to thank our wonderful sponsors do check out the links uh, to their work in the show notes and also to thank you my lovely loyal listeners um, I'm hoping to do a full uh, year of these podcasts it'll all depend on a couple of things uh, my health is always an issue these days um, but also whether I've got relevant things to say I don't just want to turn up and chat a load of nonsense on this so I'm, I'm thinking hard about that in the future of the podcast but fingers crossed I'll certainly see you for a few more episodes anyway. So I hope the start of the school year goes really, really well. I hope you're enjoying being back to something close to normal and doing the job that you all love. And fingers crossed, I look forward to invading your ears at some point in the future. You take care. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.